Welcome to Incredible Healthcare Leaders, a podcast where we interview the healthcare industry's key players on topics like current events, their successes, and their failures. I'm your host, Imana Bouzaid. I'm the CEO of Incredible Health, the fastest growing career marketplace for healthcare workers in the US, and the only marketplace technology that helps hospitals and health systems hire permanent, experienced nurses in 20 days or less. Okay, so our guest today is Janice Nevin, Dr. Janice Nevin. She's the president and CEO of Christiana Care, Delaware's largest healthcare provider and one of the largest health systems in the United States. It ranks in the top 40 nationally for total admissions, births, emergency department visits, and surgeries. Christiana Care's facilities includes an extensive network of outpatient services, home health care, and hospitals, a level one trauma center, a level three neonatal intensive care unit, just to name a few. Janice, um, you've become the CEO of one of the nation's largest health systems, uh, and that's incredibly impressive. And we'd like to understand how this all started. When did you first become started interested in healthcare? Oh, well, thank you. It's great to be here with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I was one of those kids that always wanted to go to medical school. So it started with me wanting to be a doctor. And um, I found myself in college uh, as a pre-med student, sitting in a physics class, wondering what on earth does physics have to do with being a physician? Because I wanted to take care of people. To me, the attraction about medicine was the opportunity to actually work with people and make a difference. So I stepped back for a short while and sort of really thought about what I wanted to do. I became really interested in public health and particularly the history of public health. I had the opportunity to major in history and science and studied sort of that interplay of society and policy and industry and how really when we when we talk about health we're talking about much more than the practice of medicine and it was really that which brought me back to wanting to be a physician because i felt that i could be a part of that ecosystem and and really start to think about not only delivering health as a practicing clinician but could i make a bigger impact on the entire system. I did take a couple of years off between medical school and um, college. I spent a year at Durham University in England learning about social policy, economic policy, and health systems across the world. And then I spent a year teaching uh, geometry and algebra one at an American school outside of London. Um, And uh, I'm so grateful I had those two years because when I started medical school, uh, I felt like I was truly ready uh, to embrace all that medical school brings with it. I went to medical school thinking I wanted to be a general uh, practitioner and learned about the field of family medicine and fell in love with family medicine, particularly at Jefferson, where I was a medical student, because it allowed the full expression of what what I had learned about the biopsychosocial model of health and care, sort of combining that medical care with that social care, with mental health care, and really addressing someone's health as a comprehensive and holistic approach. And so I I ended up in family medicine. I became the uh, residency program director at Jefferson uh, in family medicine, learned a ton from that experience, uh, and thought that I would spend my career in academic family medicine. 
and then got the chance to come to Christiana Care in 2002 to be the chair of family medicine. Again, sort of on that, I would say, academic track and really fell in love with the organization. I had never been to a place that so fully expressed its mission in terms of the work that was done, how decisions were made, the commitment to the community. Uh, and it really sort of spoke to me about sort of why I had gone into medicine uh, in the first place. Uh, and I've been here now for almost 19 years. I've had a variety of roles uh, and got the chance sort of in that first third of my career here to understand what it means to be a physician executive, had some uh, some additional education, some additional training, uh, got the chance to run one of our uh, campuses while we were transforming the building, but also uh, the transforming how we delivered care inside and out, and realized that that was my future. And then um, six years ago, I had the incredible privilege of being selected to be the CEO here at Christiana Care. All right, fantastic. Let's dig into this a little bit more. So what was your very first job? <laughs> my very first job, my mother was a secretary in the school district where we lived. And every summer, I'd, starting at age 14, the person who ran the school district would have me come in and I'd run the, the you probably don't even know this, the, the mimeographs. Um, so yeah. I would, you know, all day sort of be printing off copies, stuffing envelopes. And uh, that that was my very first job. All right. Got it. So so you're doing this first job and it wasn't um, was your very next job a doctor? Oh, sorry, you said you were also teaching in a school. Yeah, well. no, absolutely not. Yeah, actually, my next job was when I went to college and I worked in the cafeteria and I was on the dish line scraping plates and loading the dishwasher. And then I was a secretary in the athletic department. Then I was a teacher and then I became a doctor. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. All right. Yeah, I just wanted to share that history because, you know, people see CEO and they're like, oh, Jan Janice was born a CEO, right? <laughs> but no, there was like a whole path, right? Then the, the other question I had for you is just about this transition from academic medicine to actually running a team, running a health, eventually running an entire health system. Can you talk us through in a little bit more detail how that transition happened? Because you were on a very clear academic path and there's some shift that happened. Yeah, I, I loved family medicine. Uh, I loved the department at Jefferson. Uh, and I loved uh, teaching residents. I, I often say that being the residency director sort of gave me the opportunity to grow all of those skills that no matter what you do later in life, you know, there is value there. And always for me, you know, the opportunity to help others exceed their own expectations to create that next generation of doctors. That was just, again, sort of, I think that's such a core part of leadership. So I loved my job. I loved training residents. And I'd had the opportunity to get engaged in some of the national family medicine organizations. And I loved that work, too. Again, it was sort of the opportunity to make new relationships, create a new network, and with a very sort of a group of leaders who came from all over the country, you know, roll up our sleeves and figure out, you know, how, what does the future of family medicine look like? How should we train the next generation and how can we have an impact together? So I was fully entrenched in academic family medicine. I imagined that I would spend my entire career at Jefferson uh, and eventually be one of those, you know, professor emeritus 
types that was <laughs> still mentoring students and residents and, and lecturing. Um, then life it took a different turn. I got another opportunity. As you're looking back at your career, just retrospectively, were there any critical moments that uh, that like altered your path? Absolutely. You know, I think that one of the things that I, you know, I talk about is, is you have to sort of know when the opportunity is there in front of you. And is it the right opportunity and be willing to take a risk. And for me, that was the opportunity to come to Christian Care. I had never imagined leaving an academic setting. And as I got to know the organization and the people uh, in the organization, the opportunity was to, you know, I, I would say sort of live my purpose in a different way, to be able to be part of an organization that so deeply understood its mission, was so connected to the community, and really the opportunity to have an impact on an entire state, to get really involved right away in that, in health policy and advocacy and creating new programs. You know, that was the opportunity that, if you know, have you talked to me three or four years before I, I said yes to Christianity Care, I said, no way, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to stay where I am. It, it felt a little risky, frankly. You know, I still have some folks from the first part of my career who I think are wondering why I left <laughs> academic medicine and, and took this other path. But it, it, I saw the opportunity that it presented. And frankly, I had no idea at the time what a big opportunity this was going to be for me uh, to really grow and develop, not only as a physician, but as a leader at uh, Christiana Care in Delaware, in the region, and, and in the country. Got it. Okay, so let's, let's chat a bit more about Christiana Care. So it's a health system that's built on the values of love and excellence, which is what we read about. Love is an, it's an unusual value for a large health system. It's very rare that we use, see that word used. And so what, what, was the pro, what was your process for choosing those values? That's a great question, and you're absolutely right. I don't know why we don't talk about love in healthcare, but we don't. I had been in my role as CEO for about two years and had created a strategic plan, which we were beginning to execute on. And our values as a system hadn't been explored for quite a number of years. And so I, I decided it was time to redefine our values and behaviors. But I wanted to do the work in a very different way. I didn't want this to be a top-down, sort of, here's what we're going to do, what do you think? I wanted this to emerge from the entire organization. So I'll never forget meeting with the leadership team saying, okay, I want to engage all 12,000-plus people in this process. I want to be able to walk around at the end of this year and talk to anybody in any role in the organization and have them tell me how they contributed to this work. You can imagine the looks that I got. <laughs> She's lost her mind. You know, how can we do that? But we did that. It was awesome. You know, we had, uh, we put out a call for 150 ambassadors to help sort of funnel information from leadership to the front line. Uh, we got 400 who wanted to engage, and they became critical in really engaging the front line getting you know, what they thought was important about our values, bringing it to leadership. And then we had teams of people that would just sort of dig in. I thought when we started, we would have a list of maybe four words. That's pretty typical. What emerged was a sentence. We serve together 
guided by our values of excellence and love. We Serve Together was an expression of the importance of teamwork for us. The team that you're on has to function really well, but for us as an organization, all of our teams across Christianity Care have to function as one team. That was an expression of teamwork. Excellence, I often say it's in our DNA. It's about being exceptional today and even better tomorrow. So I wasn't surprised that, you know, that sort of expression of teamwork and expression of excellence emerged. But I'll be honest, when the word love emerged, I was kind of like, well, that's different. I wasn't quite expecting that. But as I started to really think about love and I learned about love, I'm thinking, this is it, you know, and I had an experience during the midst of this when I had an orthopedic surgeon come into my office, which doesn't happen very often, all excited, wanting me to go meet one of his patients. And I did that. And I talked to her and she said uh, she had not had a mammogram for years. I was afraid to get a mammogram, her first one, mid-60s. And unfortunately, she was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. She was in for a an orthopedic procedure. And she said to me, she said, I need you to know that everywhere I have been in this organization, I have been treated with respect. No one has judged me. I have been treated with kindness. You have made me feel loved. And I thought if we can do that for every single person, then we will make a difference in their lives. We will be impacting health. And of course, Love is part of Donabedians, Berwick's, Pronovos sort of uh, rhetoric when they talk about how you achieve the best quality and the safest care. So from my heart, uh, it just made sense uh, to go with love, but there's also some science behind it. And frankly, I, I would say that you know, now that we have been living with these values, we have learned more about what uh, love means in healthcare than I could have possibly imagined. Because yes, it's about compassion and caring, but it's also about speaking the truth with courage and empathy. It's about respecting, showing respect to everyone, embracing diversity. It really forces you to have some of those very challenging conversations that we need to have in healthcare about really difficult things. And I think because we've been able to do that, we've been able to evolve a culture here that has allowed us to really think about how we deliver care in dramatically different ways. Got it. Okay, so let's go through a couple of examples. Love the metastatic patient, the, the cancer patient example, but how do you see love and excellence in your day-to-day at Christianicare? Like, are there any, any other examples that you can share with us? Absolutely. I mean, I think you just look at the last 15 months of the pandemic. I mean, I am so grateful we had done that work heading into last March because we knew how to serve together in very different ways. And I don't think a day has gone by, you know, not only in the last 15 months, but probably in the last four years, where someone hasn't said to me, well, that was a serve together moment. Look what we just did. Or that's what it looks like leading with love. Every leadership meeting that I run, we start with a core values call out. 
And um, we refer to, you know, one of the behaviors that supports that core value. And one of the members of the leadership team shares something about, you know, an experience that either they've been part of or they've heard about. And it really, it, it covers the breadth of what we do as an organization. One of our, our behavior statements is we use resources wisely and effectively. And so an example of living our values might be, uh, you know, a, um, a nurse manager changes workflow in order to be more efficient, to improve the experience for the caregivers, and to be more effective. Those examples happen every day across the organization. So um, Christiana Care and, and Highmark Health, they just formalized a partnership to offer a value-based care model. For those listeners that don't know what that means, can you, can you just explain what value-based care is? Absolutely. I define value in healthcare as how do we create a deeply personalized experience so that every person, every human, leads a, a life, a quality of life that's important to them, doing it in a way that we're taking cost out so care becomes affordable. When you hear the phrase value-based payment, at its most rudimentary level, it's about paying for those outcomes rather than those transactions. So many, many uh, places have done pay for performance, where if you achieve certain quality goals, you might get paid a little bit more. In its fullest expression, though, it's about sharing responsibility for the health outcomes and for the cost of care. That's how we've defined it. And what's exciting about working with Highmark is it's giving us the opportunity to create that delivery system for health and at the same time find a way to share the responsibility for payment so we're taking cost out and making care more affordable. That's value-based payment in its, its truest expression. Okay. And so what does this partnership mean for the, for the average Christiana Care patient? This partnership is, it creates a new company. Um, it's a joint venture. So, you know, Highmark Health is still Highmark Health and Christiana Care is still Christiana Care. And that joint venture is really designed to impact the entire health ecosystem. I'm back to where I started when I talked about, you know, my undergraduate public uh, health experience. You know, it's how do we use this incredible, you know, data that comes to us, and now that data is going to come from Christian Care and Highmark Health, which is more than the insurance company Highmark Inc. It's also an integrated uh, delivery financial system, so they have providers also. We can use that data to really understand what are the pain points for patients, for people who are providing care. And then can we dig deep and find solutions? If they exist, great, let's bring them to that problem. If they don't exist, we're going to invest in solving those issues uh, and bringing our teams together to design new solutions. We're also going to use our Center for Virtual Health at Christiana Care to, again, deliver care in a very different way. I want to see care health completely uncoupled from this notion of a visit. Care should be continuous. It should be about the relationship. And a lot of that relationship can be created, defined, 
the care can be provided by using data and by using sort of those virtual capabilities so that when somebody needs um, an in-person encounter as part of their relationship, it truly is right care, right place, right time. And then the opportunity that we have, because Highmark is also an insurance company, is in Delaware, we can actually create insurance products that are designed to support that new approach to providing care. So, and it allows us to think about equity and social determinants of health and mental health, really invest in those things that we know are critical uh, to creating health. And you, you'd spearheaded a project called CareVio. Is that, am I pronouncing Correct. that correctly? Yeah. CareVio. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that and then how it relates to this, to this new partnership with Highmark Health? Yeah, we've been on this journey for a number of years and in 2013 launched CareVio with the help of funding from CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And it was really what I described is how can we connect data that currently lives in silos around the person so that we can apply artificial intelligence and machine learning, apply predictive analytics, so we can create a risk profile for that patient. And instead of waiting for them to get sick so that they have to come to the emergency department or the hospital, we can know what's going on and we can actually reach out and say, how can we help you? We've noticed that there's been some change. The, the whole concept was intervening to change the trajectory of care. So we built out this incredible multidisciplinary team, nurses, care managers, social workers, diabetes educators, behavioral health therapists, pharmacy folks, physicians. I mean, the whole sort of team that cares for a patient. And we connected them and CareVio essentially launched our Center for Virtual Health. You, you mentioned several concepts there, um, you know, machine learning, predictive analytics. And I know that uh, as you're one of the few health system CEOs that is, is really embracing innovation and technology in order to deliver better care. Your HR and nursing teams, they use incredible health for their hiring. You have your finance teams using other kinds of software. And, and then you just slate, uh, just gave a great example of using um, technology to deliver better care. What, what is your kind of overall philosophy when it comes to technology and healthcare? Because it sounds like you've been embracing it for many, many years. Everything that can be digital will be. All care that can be delivered in the home will be. And increasingly, you know, voice recognition is the tool that allows people to connect to data technology in the home, in the community. That's been our mantra for a number of years, and that's what we're building to. And it's not just about care. As you talked about, you know, um, it's leveraging the new technology that we have to do things like recruit, you know, work with you and recruit nurses or uh, to take cost out of our financial system to make it more consumer friendly. And so we've really looked for partners that share that vision and are really focused on the consumer, the person, so that we, we can, again, create value, create a different kind of experience that feels very personal and create a care delivery system that takes cost out so that that care is affordable. 
Got it. Okay. So we'd love to kind of understand what the limitations are here, right? So today, some, you know, there's surgeries that are done while surgeons are wearing augmented reality headsets and they're even done remotely sometimes. You know, is there any, are there any aspects of healthcare that you see that will never become digital? You know, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I came to healthcare because it was the, it was the opportunity to care for people. And I don't think that that ever changes. In fact, as I think about our COVID experience, yes, an explosion in telehealth, an explosion in thinking about data and technology. But in many ways, for me, the greatest learning has been about that human connection and how important that is for people. So when I think about the technology that we have and I think about the future, it's how can we use that technology to enable people, you know, the providers, the caregivers, how can we help them do what they do really well, which is bring that human connectedness to those interactions and do it in a way that is more deeply meaningful. So, you know, I, I am one of those folks, I think that the promise of technology, it will make us better, but it will never replace the importance of the empathy um, that comes from those human to human interactions. Got it. Back to the love. The love. Love. Value, yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've been a strong proponent of health equity and anti-racism. How has the past year impacted that work for, for Christiana Care? The very last leadership meeting I had before we sort of, you know, stopped everything and became COVID and only COVID last March was a conversation about racism. Uh, Health equity has been core to the work that we do, and we have been committed to being an anti-racist organization, although I'm not sure that we would have been able to articulate that in that way 18 months ago. We knew that because we had such deep relationships with the community, that COVID was going to have a disproportionate effect on vulnerable communities. I remember hearing at the beginning of COVID, oh, it's going to be the great equalizer. Absolutely not. And what we've seen through the pandemic is, I mean, it's undeniable the impact that it has had on communities of color, people who have are disabled, the frail and vulnerable um, elderly, uh, and it, to me, you know, it, this is one of the imperatives. It's a moral imperative as, you know, we're in a much better place managing the pandemics. We have to address these inequities. We have to pay attention to race, to poverty, uh, and we have to do differently. You know, we have been talking a, a fair bit. We have been doing some work, but it hasn't had an impact. And we have really over the last 15 months, you know, taken that commitment that we had and really have augmented it in the work that we are doing. We no longer talk about sort of traditional community benefit. We talk about partnerships with communities. We talk about investing in communities. Uh, And we did that with COVID. How can we learn from, partner with, become a trusted uh, member of that community and really sort of be there to do what they know is needed uh, to create health. And we've also doubled down on anti-racism. You know, one of the most memorable moments for me in the midst of COVID was being part of the White Coats for Black Lives recognition, remembrance of George Floyd's 
murder. When we knelt together, we knelt for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which is what we thought the, the time was then. And it was incredibly moving. We did it across the organization, both in person and virtually. And uh, it, it, it helped us focus on the work that we need to do, yes, to create an anti-racism statement, but more importantly, to act to look at our policies, look at our procedures, look at the kinds of conversations that we were having with each other and uh, commit to being a fundamentally different organization. So we have doubled down on our equity work and on our inclusion and diversity work. Got it. Okay, let's dig into the detail a little bit more because we know many, many health system executives are you know, trying to make progress in this area, and, and your team has. So in the spring of 2020, Christiana Care makes this anti-racism commitment. Can you translate that for us? How has that impacted day-to-day care? We have taken a number of actions after making that statement. We have engaged in courageous conversations. Um, and for me, that has been the chance to sort of sit with leaders from around the country and talk about anti-racism and to read and to learn and share, you know, my own sort of sense of where I am and what I need to know. I haven't come to this work as in any way of you know, sort of being an expert in this. I've come to this work as somebody who needs to learn and grow. And um, and and we have done. I've done that, you know, for the organization for caregivers. We have had uh, courageous conversations with each other. Um, where we bring groups together and um, there it's a safe space for people to share their experience. We have employee resource groups, um, one of which is growing our African-American leaders as an example. It's another place where people can come together and they can have those safe conversations. We've brought in experts to help facilitate some of that work, particularly around racism and health. We are going through our policies, uh, particularly our HR policies, to ensure that they are consistent with being an anti-racism organization. We have created leadership development programs, one of which is called Leadership DNA. So we've completely revamped how we think about succession planning and talent development. We're looking at, at it through an inclusion and diversity lens. We have we're showing our leaders um, numbers <laughs> and, you know, and there's nothing like, you know, sort of you have to be honest when you look at your dashboard and you say, OK, we've got some opportunities here. We don't have enough leaders with brown and black skin. We need to do more and we need to be intentional about that. So really have taken a very broad based approach across the entire organization. And, you know, we've done a lot of work and we've been recognized for that work. But I always say, you know, it's it, there's so much more to be done. And that's our commitment into the future. I, this is work that won't stop. Uh, it will be continuous and we're going to need to engage. Got it. And specifically your work with the communities. So as, as, your, as your team is trying to create a more equitable and, and, and more accessible healthcare for your, for, for example, for your black, for your African-American and your Latinx communities in Delaware, what, what does that look like in terms of just the detail of it? What, can you mention a couple of examples there? Absolutely. That is about, you know, creating partnerships with community leaders, bringing in investment in that they define as being valuable. And what that meant for COVID was we established a presence at the Latin American Community Center, for example, where we were there, you know, because of COVID, 
We brought interpreters. Um, we had appropriate sort of cultural materials. And it became not about just about COVID and the opportunity to get a COVID test. It became a, became a conversation about health. We had the opportunity in the moment to connect someone to a virtual provider who spoke their language. Um, but I always say, you know, it was really about creating trust. How do we create trust? How do we make this not just about what we need to do in the moment for COVID, but let's make this a new platform for health. And that's been invaluable. Now that we're doing vaccines, that trust that we've built, those relationships with community partners have meant we've been invited to help them with vaccines. And so that has been our focus when it's around the vaccine. Yes, we did our uh, our own employees, our caregivers. Uh, yes, we have done, you know, a lot of uh, events for the community, but we have those community relationships that we had have been invaluable. And we have done event after event because of those relationships, really sort of providing access to communities that typically haven't had access. And that includes the disabled. You know, we have been able to get people who, you know, are in that special needs group also uh, vaccination because we had those relationships with the blind community, the deaf community, um, young adults with severe neuromuscular disease. It's been all about how do we craft a relationship, become a trusted partner, so we can do uh, with the community what is needed for the community. Got it. So your commitment to health equity ended up impacting your vaccine rollout? Absolutely. Influencing your vaccine rollout? Yeah, okay. it was it was an integral part from, from the very beginning. One of our events, and this is, I love this story, there's a, an event hall ca- called Salon Ruby. And the woman who holds events there is a trusted member of the Latinx community. And she reached out and said, could we do an event there? And, uh, and of course, we said yes. And so partnered with her, she got more than 400 or so members of her community to that event. And, you know, one of the challenges of the vaccines has been at the end of the day, you're, when you do these big events, you usually have some doses that if you don't use them, they go to waste. Uh, the team actually went to the Walmart, which was right around the corner, and found the 20 people there that uh, also, you know, from the Latinx community that needed to be vaccinated and brought them to Salon Ruby so they could get uh, immunized. I mean, that's the kind of commitment that we've made. And I'll tell you, uh, I think it's brought us all such joy to be able to uh, deliver the vaccine, to be part of these events, uh, especially sort of given the last 15 months. Got it. Okay, let's let's um, let's turn. That's amazing, by the way. Those examples are phenomenal. So let's let's turn internally to your own frontline workers. Um, so m- many hospitals they want to provide support for their frontline workers, their nurses, their doctors, so on, but they struggle to implement pr- uh, programs that are meaningful. Christiana Care, you have a very robust support infrastructure for your staff. Can you tell us a little bit more about the support system and how how it even came to be? I think it goes back to those values and the culture that is created. We've been investing in our caregivers for a number of years, and that has included the establishment of the Center for Work-Life Wellbeing, where we have a team that's committed to not only providing support for caregivers who may be experiencing burnout, 
or stress, but really finding those moments to bring joy and meaning to work and connecting people to their purpose. I, it's one of those things I'm so grateful that it was in place as we headed into last March because, again, it framed those sort of what do we need to do in a very different way. I mean, there was just no question from the very beginning we were going to do whatever we needed to do to care for our caregivers. It involved prepaid child care, the ability to use PTO. It gave prepaid hotel rooms. And we had people who rounded all three shifts 24-7, pushing a cart with all kinds of fun snacks and a glass defogger and masks. Uh, and it was not about what was important. It was not about what was in the cart. It was about the conversations that happened around the cart because the people pushing the cart came from the Center for Work-Life Wellbeing. And it was the ability to then engage our caregivers in, in real conversations about their anxiety, about the experience that they were having. And then that enabled us to learn and bring more support. One of the, the outcomes of all of this is that we are now very clear about when we look at our strategic aims, you know, caregiver experience is right there. Because we know if we don't create the right kind of experience for our caregivers, they won't be able to create the right kind of experience for patients. And we continue to honor that commitment, growing the resources that we have. This pandemic, it's not just been hard for people at work, but when they've gone home, you know, it's hard. It's been hard at home also. And, uh, you know, our, our team has really made it a priority to care for our caregivers. Did these programs exist even before the pandemic or were they were implemented during? Or? Uh, they, the Center for Work-Life Wellbeing exist, existed before the pandemic. We had some pandemic-specific programs. And now that we're in a different place, we're continuing to grow that team. And we're continuing to provide, we provide peer counseling. In fact, there was uh, in, in May of last year, the New York Times featured the work that we're doing around this on the cover, you know, really exploring the challenges that caregivers were having a year ago and frankly are continuing to have with their own resilience and their mental health. We have um, oasis rooms all over the hospitals. And there's even one, uh, a wellness room in the um, C-suite offices. This idea that we need to create space for people to be able to go in the middle of their day when they just need to decompress. You know, these aren't break rooms. It's not a, a staff meeting room. These are rooms where there's a recliner and there may be um, the opportunity to dim the lights, play some quiet music. It's just a place for someone to go in the middle of their day and have a moment to meditate. That's something I do pretty regularly. You know, maybe do a few yoga poses, you know, but just to sort of, you know, what, what you need to recharge your your batteries. Um, and again, they were all in place ahead of COVID, thankfully. And we've just, you know, we've learned so much and we're continuing to, to do more of that um, so that we, we can invest in wellness. You've been incredibly successful so far, and I'm sure the success will continue. But I want to ask you about, uh, not about success, but about failure. Can you, can you tell us what, what was your greatest failure career-wise to date? And, and what did you learn from it? That's a hard question to answer. Um, has everything gone the way I expected it? 
Absolutely not. And I could probably go through a number of examples. You know, it's, it's some of the hard work is around people and around partnerships. I think those are the areas where there are great challenges. But what I have learned is, as a leader, is you're not going to always make the right decision, but you, you have to make decisions. And then it's how you manage that decision that really sort of determines whether you're going to be successful or not. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm making this decision. I believe I'm managing it well. Okay, not going so well. The best way to manage that decision is to completely reverse course. You know, I tell my, my uh, I have two 20-somethings. Uh, I tell them this too, you know, because at, at that age, you're often struggling with a decision. You know, the, I almost say there's, there's no such thing as a bad decision. You know, you're going to make a decision, but it's how you manage the impact of that decision that really determines success or failure. And that's something I've learned, learned along the way. Got it. And so examples of that, are, you said you said you mentioned people. Is that like around hiring people, letting someone go, like those those kinds of? Um... Yes, absolutely. They, you know, I think um, as I think certainly, and, and again, I, I'm being I know I'm being sort of sensitive to to talking about some of the specifics. But some of my early learning was as a CEO. I think, and, and you probably feel this too, Amon, is lying awake in the middle of the night is not an unusual experience. <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> there's so much to worry about. But I say, I should be lying awake at night worried about the kinds of things that the right things. If I'm lying awake at night because I'm worried that I don't have somebody in the right role or somebody's not performing well, that's something I can do something about, you know, and I can have that courageous conversation with them, you know, speak the truth with courage and empathy and, um, you know, help them either exit the organization or find another seat on the bus. You know, those are, those are some of those really, really hard conversations. And I think when I look back, when I've spent too many nights lying awake and you haven't moved quickly enough, you know, I think, gosh, you know, I, I, that's something I probably should have done you know, three months ago as, as opposed to now. And I still say as a leader, you know, my role, and it hasn't really changed since I was the residency director, is I want to help people exceed their own expectations. That's my job, is to help people exceed their own expectations. And if I'm failing at that, then something different needs needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are... As CEOs, we are completely dependent on our teams <laughs> succeed. Our success is their success. Got it. So then when you, when you look back on your life, what is a moment of kindness or generosity that stands out to you? Like what's, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever, ever done for you? There have been, there have been so many kind things along the way. I, and again, I go back to uh, the beginning. My first real job after residency was as an attending in family medicine at Jefferson and um, I was instantly, um, I was, as soon as I started, I was pregnant. I was in my first trimester and I was really sick. And there was a second year resident who essentially, when I was rounding in the hospital with the team, took care of me. You know, he would bring me saltines and I was supervising him. He was taking care of me. And I learned so much about that. It was, it was in many ways the kindest lesson that whatever your role, it's not about sort of your title or the hierarchy. It's always about those relationships. And it's really taught me 
to deeply appreciate listening to people on the front line, really understanding what their experience is. In many ways, that's, that is how I learn um, and how we grow as an organization. And what I loved about this resident, he eventually became um, a faculty member. I'll never forget, again, he was willing to give me advice about my leadership. And I'm always, I was so grateful for that. If I would get frustrated, it was early in my career, you know, he was, he was willing to call me out uh, and really engage me in meaningful conversations. And that is kind. And I continue to, to view that. When somebody says to me, Janice, let's sit down and have a conversation about this. I need to share something with you that might be difficult for you to hear, but you need to know this. I look at those as gifts, and it, it may not seem like a moment of kindness, but it really is. Again, it's back to sort of serving together with excellence and love. We have to have authentic conversations if we're going to make a difference. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll leave, we'll leave it at that. Uh, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Incredible Healthcare Leaders. If you enjoyed the show, share the podcast with a friend and tweet at Join Incredible to let us know. We may give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Remember to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Incredible Healthcare Leaders is produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Our theme music is from Purple Planet Music. I'm Imana Buzaid. See you next time.